0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today I interview Sergio Lopez Pinheiro about his new book, A Glossary of Urban Voids. It's one of the more fascinating books I've encountered in some time. And I say encountered because it's not only a book in the traditional sense of something you read, but also a keen intellectual and aesthetic experience. The very design of the book and its use of the glossary as a form opens up exciting ways of thinking and seeing. And this is very much to the point for Lopez Pinheiro, because the urban void about which he writes is a phenomena that resists definition. It is, in his words, unspecified and underspecified. And that's exactly what makes it so intriguing. Join me in hearing Lopez Pinheiro show us how some of the most seemingly overlooked and neglected areas of our urban environments may end up being the most crucial for our freedoms and our possibilities. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, hello Eric. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you and I'm excited to talk about your book today, A Glossary of Urban Voids. And I was thinking about all the different ways that we could introduce this fascinating book to our listeners. Um, and, and here's maybe one, and we can take it from there. So many of us have had the experience of being in an urban landscape. You know, we're walking somewhere in New York or Detroit, or we're in London, Um at Berlin and we we walk past we're, we're in the city, but we walk past one of those blocks that seems just burnt out. Um, and sometimes there's broken glass and sometimes there's you know signs that people have been having a good time and you know we have this feeling of like, I wonder what goes on here at night. Maybe I shouldn't come here at night And then you think, well, and maybe it'd be a lot of fun to come here at night. So there's there's this sort of interesting allure. Um, so I'm just wondering if, if, you know, we encounter this space in the city, how can we begin thinking about our experience as we're, we're standing in front of it?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that the, the, the dichotomy or the ambivalence that you're referring to is, is very accurate. There is a kind of unknown, um, there's a difficulty of, of categorizing that space, of really um, putting into one of the spatial categories that we're used to and that we feel that we understand and that we can predict, that we know what to expect. These kind of spaces uh, do not fall in those categories. And so we always find, I think, attracted to their, um, to their openness or to their ambivalence, and at the same time well, we're wary of them uh, because of the fact that we cannot predict the type of behavior that might be happening in them because they don't uh, they seem to be falling outside of the typical spaces where we always expect a certain decorum or a certain behavior or a certain um, type of, of, of attitude and behavior. so in these in this type of spaces we're always uh, we're, we're allured but at the same time we're worried because of the fact that they fall outside of the usual categories, but at the same time, precisely because of that, we don't know what to expect fully. Um, so I think that the, the kind of, you know, um, uh, interest, but at the same time, slight um, uh, rejection or like the, the, the will to put a safe distance between us and those kind of spaces, I think it's a fair and a very accurate description of the, of the experience of these places. At that first sight, yes.
0: Yeah, and and you know, in your in your book title, um, you refer to them as as urban voids. Um, mm-hmm. But there are over two hundred terms in the book, in the glossary, um, to try to to name this space. Can you tell us a little bit when we move from, say, the the level of you know immediate experience of walking through a city to to thinking about? terminology and, and how to name a space like this. And um, I think that ultimately goes to the structure of the book itself as a glossary. It, it's really just a fascinating book to turn pages in.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, I think that the the thing that is most interesting to me about these kind of spaces is it's precisely their ambiguity. I think it's incredibly difficult to capture ambiguity, I think it's incredibly difficult to work with ambiguity, um, not just in a general sense, but even more so in a spatial one, particularly in one that depends on the public realm, where things need to be stipulated, they need to be codified, they need to be planned, they need to be regulated, they need to go through bureaucracies. So in those cases, like planning and design is almost the opposite of ambiguity. Uh, And so um ambiguity has like this very interesting quality uh very it's very delicate but the, and it's very um interesting and enriching but it's also incredibly difficult to capture and I think that what the book does is in a way it's an effort of capturing this uh, this spatial quality without um let's say killing it without rendering um uh, uh, without exhausting it or without uh, making it, um, without codifying it and therefore render, making it inaccessible. And so what was interesting to me, and the, the only, what was interesting to me about this process was in a way realizing or discovering that um, the only way in my mind, the only possible way that I could find of capturing this ambiguity and all the possibilities that it entails uh, while at the same time Naming it and therefore so that people could refer to it was actually not just me giving it one name or me referring to one particular term that someone would have used, but actually collecting all of the terms that people have been using in the in the recent past. And it's around like uh, 25 uh, years. And to to then with this um, with this constellation of terms define the boundaries of this of this ambiguity. So, like, what I'm trying to to do is like to hold it intellectually, let's say, without uh, exhausting its 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 openness or its opportunities. And then, to me, the glossary was the only, uh, let's say, literary mechanism that would allow me to do so. I went through several tries um, and through several uh, tests, and ultimately, this is the. In my mind, this is the only way that I could do this. Um, I initiated the project actually by thinking that I was going to do a reader. So a more conventional collection of articles. Um, But eventually I got to the conclusion that, well, that collection of articles was going to be was going to be delimiting the, the understanding of this space in very specific ways. And by doing so, it would actually not be capturing the very essence of the space. It might be very precise in some intellectual term, but from a point of view of sensibility, it would actually be counterproductive. It would be against the very essence of the space that I'm trying to define. And so, yeah, the glossary was the only literary mechanism that I could think of um, that would allow me to to, to do this.
0: That is so great uh, that the very form of the book is a way to... Accurately present and yet not constrict the phenomena you're trying to capture, and I wonder if you you just describe the physicality of the book that what a what a reader would encounter because every every person that has encountered this book when I've had it out has just stopped and picked it up and turned the pages. I mean, the design is just haunting and gorgeous and 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 I I want to bring our attention to this because I think the very physicality of the book and the way you're using text and image and the left and the right side of the page also do um what you're talking about which is capturing this phenomena without somehow mangling it
1: I I think that your description is really really great and like one of my um Um, uh, Gilles De Semini told me that the book was uh, uh, um, a little bit absurd in in a positive way in the sense that it was using a dictionary or a glossary which is generally a mechanism to define things precisely but it was doing so as a way of capturing ambiguity which is something that needs to remain a little bit imprecise and so like this kind of effort of like it's almost a little bit counterintuitive but it's at the end it was the only possibility by defining a little bit the contours of this constellation was the only way that i could find the uh, that i could that i I think would achieve this and so the book uh, i'm very happy that you bring up the design of the book the book is designed by a firm called omnivore and the designer of the book is julie cho um who is someone that I work with? This on this uh, with work with her on this book, and I'm also working with her on my second book, typologies for big words. And so the book is uh, when someone opens it and sees a spread of the book on the left side uh, uh, pages. There is the running glossary, so there's like the the terms are being listed in alphabetical order, and the layout is a two column, uh, very typical of the of the of what a dictionary looks like, and, and then the right hand pages are is my running essay where I uh, talk about the urban void and where where I talk about the the efforts and that different authors have put forward in order to rethink the urban void as a public space, and I you know I I, I add to this conversation. I continue this conversation in my own way. And then I also add other um, aspects of how to do this in a way that I believe would be beneficial for the public at large. So the book is also, in, in the text, I refer to the dictionary so that the reader uh, can can be moving left to right, right to left, as the reader is going through the book. Um, in the book, I talk about... Um, this layout almost as a pair of clutches so that the reader can like lean in more on one side, uh, on the left, on the actual definitions of different authors, or and that sometimes, and then at other times, more on the right side, which is my own interpretation and my own argument and my own criticism of these kind of spaces and how the term has come into being and how people understand them and so on and so forth. So the the the, the book in itself also... Um, I mean, I'm putting forward my own contribution and my own point of view, but I'm also doing that by giving the reader the opportunity to question it or to see where it's coming from or to, um, um, open up and lead the reader into further conversations. And so the, the book is also not meant as a, as a, as an end point on this conversation. It also acts in some ways. It could be an introduction for a lot of people that don't know anything about urban voids because it presents it in such an open manner. But at the same time, it's also a book for people that have been working on this matter for a long time because of the exhaustive material that is in here and the very, very specific citations and the fact that you have all the material in one book. So I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting format that, um, that, that, that helps achieve the, the, the mission or the difficulty of the of the of the effort of capturing this space in a respectful uh, uh manner in a manner that 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 goes along with the very essence of the space itself and not against it
0: and and before we move on thank you for that answer that that was very very illuminating could you also speak to the inclusion of images we get a, a lot of aerial shots um uh-huh. of cityscapes
1: uh-huh so this is this was all, uh, this was um, a little bit I had a little bit of difficulty selecting the images because I wanted to I wanted to select images that had been taken um, all in the same way. I wanted the images that had been taken almost in a systematic manner um, I didn't want to be including images from different people that would show like different, you know, different heights or different camera lenses or like different points of view. I, in a way, I didn't, I wanted the images to be a little bit more aseptic. Uh, I wanted the, 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 the visual material to appear more as matter of fact. And I wanted the words and the interpretations and the terms to be the ones that deal with the different subtleties of what different authors uh, in the recent past um, have looked for when dealing with this with this term. And so th- I was looking and I uh, through different databases for images that were all taken in the same way and ultimately um, I could only find um, um, a very particular data set which is the one from Google Earth um, uh, that would allow me to like always, find the same altitude, the same height, and they're always with the same lenses. They always have the same, you know, very similar color contrast. In this case, they're black and white, but the same, the same kind of um, contrast. There is a kind of um, almost, um, they have been taken in a very me- mechanic way. They, there's no artistic point of view involved in the image. And I think that that kind of coldness uh, presents the, the space as a matter of fact and allows then the words to take on a much more even poetic um, uh, or in some cases lyrical, in other cases like more like, I don't know, like research or realistic point of view. And I think that those subtleties, I wanted them to come across through the words rather than through the through the images. And that's the reason why I ended up selecting the the images I, I did and
0: the point of view that I did and and how they also laid out in the book. I, I love that idea that you wanted a an imagistic or photographic style that, in some ways, allowed the meaning of the text to rush in and fill it out rather than predetermining it. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 what we've we've I think we've done good work kind of talking about the nature of this phenomena and how hard it is to capture and and the different ways you've gone about it in order to to not damage it before we can even behold it now that we've we've kind of got it out in front of us why should we be a Paying attention to urban voids, you know, the, mm-hmm. I think that a kind of default assumption would be like, well, aren't these the spaces that are the problems in a city, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you just don't notice them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you take us on a much different journey of of the, the these have all kinds of profound things to say about our subjectivities, our cities, our understanding of time. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Um, but when somebody just says to you, you know, Sergio. Why would I want to pay attention to an urban void to a burnout block? You know, where do you begin with that person?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um,
0: uh,
1: I, I mean in some cases, some urban voids um, need to be uh, cleaned. they need to be remediated, and they might need to be um, developed. Um, there's no question about that. Um, also, in many cases, the location of urban voids in some cases, Um, really uh, reflects um, um, differences in socioeconomic backgrounds um, regarding the the areas of the city where these um, urban voids find themselves in. So in some cases, I think that there is no question in my mind that um, some urban voids might need to go through a standard process of remediation and redevelopment without any question. But um, what I what I find interesting about this is the fact that not all of them need to be thought in the same way, and uh, the historic process of of understanding the space in this manner, understanding that this space is something else that just a vacant lot awaiting redevelopment development, is like very fascinating to me. At the beginning, when um, in the in the in the mid twentieth century, uh, early sixties. Uh, when these vacant areas started to appear in cities, um, the, the initial um, understanding was that these were very problematic. They had fallen the, in 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 this use and they they had to be redeveloped and they had to be brought back, let's say, into the standard idea of urbanity or the city. And it was only little by little that people started to understand that, um, well, these kind of spaces are inherent to the urban phenomenon. And there's a couple of authors in the book where they define this species as essential to the definition of a city. They say that if a if an if an area uh, doesn't have them, then that area is not a city. It can be a town or it can be another kind of of uh, it can receive a different label of for an urban center, but it's not a city. That this kind of these kind of leftovers are inherent to the way that cities are constructed and, and the way that cities evolve. Uh, they're just like part of the way that, uh, that cities um, behave. Um, and what I find fascinating about them is that they are like this kind of interstitial space that difficult to categorize, but very full of open of possibilities in many different ways. Um, there is... a there is a scene from a well-known movie by Jacques Tati, Mononclo, that I refer to in the book, um, uh, where uh, Mononclo, who is um, one of the characters in the movie, who is a, you know, a middle-aged person who is unemployed and does not really fit well with modern society and doesn't know how to operate any kind of mechanical device, and is like, always like, very dreamy. He's like, um, and finds himself very well at ease in, um, in an in a urban void, in an abandoned lot, which is where other kids are also like, you know, playing and you know doing doing their things outside of the of the supervision of adults. This is a place where there's also stray dogs, and these kids are eating whatever they want, and they, you know, there's like a kind of like a space of of openness outside of the of the of the supervision and of the expectations and of the kind of predictable behavior that one would expect in any other kind of of space so i think that the kind of uh, openness that the urban void presents is like, very uh, rare and very useful because they're like truly um, marginal in the sense that they are they, they don't fall within a particular category of public space and so because of that they really are open to a lot of different possibilities that typical public spaces are not used, are not are not open to. And so I think that that makes it makes them not just a problem um, as as uh, initial understandings of the van void were, like maybe fifty years ago, but actually a uh, an asset um, in 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 some ways. And um, there's like several examples that are referred to in the book that have been documented by different authors. Um, uh, of how these spaces have been really appropriated by communities or just by individuals in different ways and how they become like really um, um, areas that offer something that no other place in the city does. It's it's a place without particular rules and without particular programmatic expectations with no financial... Um, uh, or, um, rules or, or needs for profitability. Um, and, and then they, they don't have, they generally don't have any maintenance. So that means that, you know, like they're not, they don't appear valuable in some ways, which means that people can experiment within them. Obviously, all of these characteristics also have the dark side, so to speak, unquestionable. Um, but they, they, yes, they offer openings and situations and moments in time that are not possible anywhere else.
0: You you use the phrase in your book that they offer unregulated freedoms, mm-hmm. um, and just to to hold that up and think like that's right. If you go even to something like the park or or you know any kind of space that's already been designed it's even if it's supposed to be a freedom like you're outside of Boston, you go to the Boston Commons it's a, it's a regulated freedom you're s- supposed to be a certain way, supposed to do certain things um, but to suddenly have in the center of such a, a regulated and urban space something that's in excess or other to it um, you know I think there it starts to come forward. I was wondering if you could, Tell us about one of those examples. You you've spoken about the Tempelhof Airport in Berlin, for example, um, or there might be another one that you'd be you'd think would work better. But it would be it would be nice to hear an example of of how this operates in a living city.
1: Yeah, so the Tempelhof Airport is a very good um, it's a very good example, um, and. Um, uh, the Tempelhof Airport was a decommissioned urban field in the center of Berlin, and um, the the um, um, it was occupied uh, temporarily by people when it was decommissioned, and uh, people started to use it in you know in whatever way they felt uh, necessary uh, in a very opportunistic ways, and so there was a moment in time when um, when the when the city of Berlin, the city hall decided that it was time to redevelop this area, and well, Berliners opposed to that to that shift because they thought that this was a different kind of space, uh, and so they wanted to keep it as such. I mean, at this point in time, uh, one would probably say fairly and accurately that the you know Tempelhof, uh, the former grounds of Tempelhof Airport now have been, you know, they 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 have they have become such an strong part of the city that they are also they are already defining their own regulations and they, they need like specific maintenance and they're like using the old um, uh, warehouses and buildings of the airport for for different purposes and so things are starting to like you know they're starting to be occupied according to calendars and according to different um, uh, opportunities uh, that are established by different departments in the city and so on. So it's starting to engage with its own bureaucracy, so to speak. And so in a way, like one could say, that is like falling outside of the realm of what it used to be. Uh, and that that is fair because maybe just because of its own success, also because of its enormous extension is like so big that it really it offers a lot of opportunities. It offers the possibility of achieving a certain solitude Despite the fact that you're in the center of Berlin and it's like like offers like very very ample horizon lines, um, so despite the fact that it was a very powerful original initial case of of such a realization by the by the citizens at this moment in time, maybe it has you know maybe he has like um, uh, started to. To, to define because of its own success, its own set of bureaucracies and its own set of regulations and qualifications that might no longer be, and uh, that might make it not no longer be as open as it used to be. But um, but that's a good example. Give me a second. I'm looking here in my in my book. There's another very good example that was documented by Daniel Campo, and um, and he used the term to document this type of space. He used the term accidental. Uh, playground (laughs) Um, and um, I'm just like trying to find yeah so I'm I'm actually like quoting from from his book the accidental playground um, but this is included in the definitions in in my book so the term is accidental playground and the, the first definition is could not have been designed or planned for and the evolution of similar experiences will likely be unforeseen Second definition is provided visitors with a plethora of historic materials and objects ideal for manipulation and play, and finally he says while you were free to create others were equally free to destroy, <coughs> and this he's referring to a um, a, a particular space in Brooklyn um, that was um, that remained. Um, uh and occupied for 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 quite some time. And um and that he, he documented through interviews and through the own history of, of of this space in in a very marvelous book called The Accidental Playground. Um, so there's like a variety of examples that that talk about these kind of spaces. Um, uh, in 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 with different levels of of detail and with different I don't know levels of of poetry or lyricism or with like more like more heavier or stronger political or social agendas.
0: When um, when you begin describing these sorts of spaces and and thank you for those examples, um, you introduce in your book a term called. The whiteout effect, or a phenomena called the whiteout effect, um, could you describe for us what is the nature of that effect? How, how does that work, and and why is it a kind of whiteout?
1: Yeah, so maybe this is a maybe this is a little bit of a of a polemical stance, right? Because um, I mean, what I'm actually when when people think of whiteout, they immediately think of of an absolute um, emptiness of a complete vacuum. And I think that particularly in the Western, there's a misunderstanding surrounding terms like emptiness or voidness. Uh, people confuse these terms or equate these terms typically with vacuums, uh, which is n- which is not true. A vacuum is something that is completely empty of everything. But when you say that something is empty, you typically one typically is arguing that that, Space or that place is emptied of something in particular, um, and so the the term whiteout here is used to refer to a the abandon abandonment that that some of that these areas suffer, and how this abandonment, which is due to some kind of obsolescence or loss, whether it's economic value or urban connectivity or any other kind, in the, in, the, in the process of lose, losing um um this value the the space is wiped out of any kind of previous ideological framework whether it's uh, financial value again or whether it's an original idea of urban integrity or whether it's a particular understanding of social decorum etc and so what i argue is that this kind of disappearance of these um um, socio-cultural frameworks is precisely what produces that kind of marginal quality in this space, which at the same time is uh, the the triggering of its of its own openness. So, what I'm trying to say with whiteout effect is not to say that these spaces are opened of every are empty of everything. What I'm trying to say with the whiteout effect is that the the transformation of these spaces. Uh, into marginal spaces, the disappearance of value or urban integrity or or occupation, um, that uh, uh, disappearance transforms the space into a marginal uh, area, but that marginality also opens up the space because it's no longer subject to the typical sociocultural frameworks. And so this is a little bit counterintuitive, but basically the loss is, uh, is an opportunity for something else. Um, and that's what I try to summarize with the term the whiteout effect. Um, the whiteout of these social and cultural uh, frameworks um, produces the opportunity to, to, for the space to be opened up to other sensibilities and forms of expression and this is what i believe happens in 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 a
0: urban void. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's it's fascinating and and i would wonder if you'd be willing to connect that um, up to a, another argument that the book makes, which is not only that we should be paying attention to the urban voids and the effects that they have this kind of white out effect that allows for other possibilities. Um, but that that also we and by we, I don't mean me in this case, but urban designers, you know, people who are doing infrastructure should be looking at the urban void for possibilities for reimagining what cityscapes can look like. Um, so, so in some ways they present a, a kind of model or a point of enlightenment to begin rethinking design itself rather than just even say a, a view of, oh, they happen to be in existence, therefore we'll, we'll not mess with them because we know they have their value. Um, but it's a completely different thing to start to imagine how how can a city begin producing these spaces or how can we imagine an urban landscape in which they, they're called into being or have the possibility of existing?
1: Um, yeah, this is a very interesting question. I, I think that um I think that I think it's difficult. I think one, one can design or one can imagine uh, spaces that maybe have a similar type of openness. But I think that in the, the process here to be to be aware of is actually that it's more like one has to recognize the emergence of these spaces. I think that this is what is like the the important thing here. Um is to really uh like see when they are emerging, how they are emerging, and the value that they offer. In some cases, again, not to repeat myself, but in some cases, they might offer no value and then they should be like really redeveloped. But in the cases in which they're offering value of many different kinds, ecological or social or uh, programmatic or um, a kind of type of space because of its size that is not available anywhere else in that part of the city in that neighborhood. In those moments, I think that it's, what is important is to recognize the value and to protect them. And what I argue in the book is that the way to protect them is primarily to pay attention to the border and to, and to like somehow hold them by solidifying or by designing the border of this space, not by getting into them and really starting to maintain them or really starting to control them, But actually, by just paying attention to its perimeter, and and really like designing or constructing that perimeter in a in a way that is more um, more stable, stabilizing somehow that 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 area. Um, I think that 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 technique allows for the space to retain its um, its value and its openness, and at the same time. And um, the, the, it allows the citizens and the, and, the, and, the, and the city to 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 hold and to, to establish the relationship and the transition from that kind of space to the rest of the city in a more concrete and well-defined, well-articulated manner. So I think that the, the issue is to recognize their emergence, number one, and number two, to pay attention to the border. Not, not having to go inside and organize things and or design and control, but actually just to like hold the border, um, the, the areas that connect with neighboring streets or with neighboring houses or with neighboring pieces of infrastructure. Those are spaces that need to be like controlled and probably like um, um, uh, maintained and, and, and designed in specific ways. But the, the, the inside of that space like I think it's important to like let it be, um, and uh, not um, not mess mess around with it too much, um, so that it retains its its own cycles, and it retains its own tem- temporality and its own spatial quality. That that is one of the that is the argument that I put forward in the book of how to engage with this kind of space from a design point of view.
0: And and right at the end of of that answer that you gave that that gives us a sense of of what it might mean we we have one and we can now in some ways let it continue to exist by attending to its borders um, you mentioned the temporal nature you said let it have its own temporality um and I did want to ask you you know I think most of us especially non scholars non professionals would think of cityscapes in more or less spatial terms can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the the temporal nature of of urban voids like what what does it mean to have it its own temporality inside those borders that you mentioned
1: yeah well i think that the 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 there's there's two main temporalities one is the one that is defined by the emergence of the void itself. So let's say that this is a space that has resulted out of the economic downturn. And so that they, there's these economic or urban cycles that would produce this type or the, that would enable the trigger the emergence of these kind of spaces. So they they appear at particular moments in time. Uh, and then they have their own temporality in the sense that they might they don't. They no longer, in many cases, respond to other cycles of of uh, that are ex- in existence in other parts of the city. So, if they're not being maintained, for example, that means that things are going to grow and grow and grow and grow. There's no this kind of like constant pruning, for example, that would happen in a norm in a in a typical park. Or there's no there's no kind of maintenance of the paths that would, that would happen in a typical path. Uh, there might not be a renewal of, uh, a removal of, of trash, maybe in some cases, or maybe they would be, but they would be they would happen not in a periodic way as it happens in any other kind of public space, but it would happen by volunteers or by people that are like moving things around. So they would happen in a very haphazard manner, in a very ad hoc manner when when volunteers appear or when means for doing that by other people are available. And so it, it, the, the space starts to to define its own temporal cycles that are not dependent on other bureaucracies or other regimes of maintenance that are established by other forces according to our idea of space or how things need to look like. Um, and this is, what, this is the, the second type of temporality that is different and inherently unique to these kind of spaces. The first one is how they emerge and how they pop up. Um, the second one is like the one that they define because of their own nature. Um, there is a um, the, there is like two chapters in the in the book. Um, number chapter three, I, I it's called intervals of space, and then chapter four is called gaps of time. And so with these with these two chapters, I discuss whether one needs to think of of these spaces as actual spaces or one needs to think about them as as slots of time or whether one needs to think about them uh, as intertwined, which is ultimately what needs to happen. And that's why I use these two expressions, right? Intervals of space. Interval is typically a term that is more temporal. Mm -hmm. And in the other case, gaps of time. and Gap is typically a term that is typically more spatial. And I think that the yes, these urban voids are an, a, a temporal uh, environment that 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 appears because of the interaction between particular spatial and temporal qualities. And I, I mean, I'm not the the only the only author that has said this or that is arguing it in this way. And uh, in these two chapters, I refer to a variety of authors that have explore this in, you know, according to a variety of points of view. Some people have looked at this more economically. Other people have looked at this more ecologically. Other people have talked about this as the kind of opportunities that they might allow for, you know, different types of pop-ups. Uh, others have talked about, you know, process of um, uh, and destruction and reconstruction. So, you know, there's like different points of view that different authors have used in order to, to get a glimpse of the intertwining of the spatial-temporal characteristics of these spaces.
0: Well, and I think what you've done with that catalog, because you also touch upon all those aspects, is show just how rich the book is. Um, and being mindful of the time, I, I do want to circle back and just say what I said at the beginning, that this is a book that just rewards intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, the way in which you've designed it such that you can you can read the essay in a linear fashion, or you can move around to different parts, or you can open it up and just kind of gaze into the the different images and then see how the text speaks to them. Um, I think that that you just have this tremendously rich book. Um, I think it's one of those that I'm just going to keep out and keep returning to, um, simply because. You know, it's thinking across time and space and time as space and uh, you know, the environment in which we're driving through and the view from the air. I mean, it's, it's, it's tremendous. Um, and given where we, where we are with time, I, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about your, your next project. You have a new book coming out and we had a chance to talk for a moment before the interview about it. And, and I think listeners would love to hear about it.
1: Well, thank you thank you very much eric for for your description for this and for the other descriptions of the book that you've made throughout the interview because I think that you're i mean you've clearly looked at this very very carefully and with a lot of detail and with a lot of love i i, I am very very happy to hear that you find it like very rewarding because i am I, I i really thought of the book as as something that is of a topic that is interesting to me but also as something that that um, as a book that needed to needed to contribute to the competition and to, to help people individually understand and to to help them open their sensibility to this kind of space. So I find I, when when you say when you describe it as rewarding, I'm very I'm very happy <laughs> I'm very happy to 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 hear this. Uh, so thank you very much for that. I'm very grateful. Um, in In regards to my next book, I'm currently working on a book called Typologies for Big Words. And this is a book that is a collection of projects that aim to redefine building and landscape types. And so each project is defined by a typology, whether it's a museum or a mausoleum or factory, for example, and then by a big word. And big words are capitalism, ecology, democracy. And so... The book is a compilation of these projects, and I have a project that is Waiting Room of Democracy. I have another project that is Factory of Ecology. And what I uh, argue in the book is that the understanding and the idea of type, um, which is a 19th century invention, uh, is always been associated with the idea of the social institution, is the construction of a very particular type of subjectivity. And what I argue is that now types need to be understood more as. As empty spaces, as voids, uh, that would allow for the emergence and for the appearance of other non-paradigmatic subjectivities, and the the way to be in in the opportunity or the advantage of figuring them out or looking at them in these ways that they allow for an opportunity to redefine these big words um, like democracy or ecology or any of these big words, which are in a way also in themselves a little bit empty because someone says the word democracy that means as we are reminded every day something completely different from when someone utters the same the very same word and so i the the book is um there's, an, there's a little bit of a theoretical essay introducing the book uh, in a more disciplinary uh, manner and then there's a collection of seven projects and each project is a com- is a combination of drawings images and a text and the the images and the text flow in a in a very intertwined manner, um, and that, that's that's the book that I'm working on right now: typologies for big words. I hope that
0: when it comes out, you'll come back and speak with us.
1: Oh, I, I definitely would love to speak with you with all the care and precision that you've that you've with which you have defined a glossary for urban voids. Eric. Thank you very much,
0: Sergio. Congratulations on the book, and thank you for being with us. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much for the invitation.